do we fix historic inequalities that continue to plague people of color, particularly in the corporate world? It is clear that our citizens are no longer comfortable with their traditional approaches to addressing racial inequality. The ones that contain the right language and practices, but are mostly symbolic and ultimately yield slow and often insignificant change. And so this podcast, The Equalizer Project was born. Conversations with leaders who can share rich, complex and powerful experiences of life in corporate America. I hope to bring awareness, to heal, to inspire. It is part of my calling, my personal mission to change lives, to leave others better off. This is the work of the Equalizer Project podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Equalizer Project podcast. I am Brenda Ross Doolin, your host. Today, we are incredibly thrilled to have a conversation with my longtime friend, Rebecca Massier Kaufman. In a word, Rebecca is simply phenomenal. But of course, it's tough to describe her in just one word. She is brilliant, strategic, courageous, and disciplined. She is a woman with a generous and thoughtful spirit, and honestly, she is a kind and loyal friend. Known for breaking barriers, Rebecca is a corporate board director and a seasoned CEO who actually advises other CEOs. She launched RMK Group in 2020 to advise CEOs on critical matters that impact their company's culture and their ultimate success. Prior to her current role, she spent 12 years with Citigroup. She ran Citigroup's international personal bank in the U.S. and became the first woman to serve as CEO of Banamax USA a Citigroup affiliate, and the largest bank in Mexico. Rebecca and I actually met when she served as head of Wells Fargo's small business group. She was a leader at Wells Fargo for 13 years. Rebecca graduated cum laude from Brown University with a BA in semiotics. She is a Fulbright Scholar at the University of Helsinki in Finland, and she earned her MBA from Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. She serves on the board of several fintech firms and finds time also to support her community. She's on the board of governors of the San Francisco Symphony and the Senior Jewish Living Group, just to name a few. She, along with Lillian So, a highly sought after transformation coach, co-authored the book, The Fit CEO, Be the Leader of Your Life. This book demonstrates how to achieve holistic health in your busy life, at work, 
at home and at play. I can't even tell you how thrilled I am to have Rebecca with us. So hi again, Rebecca. Very happy that we uh, reconnected. I would say thank God for the power of social media. <laughs> so we saw each other again and re- reconnected on LinkedIn. And, and obviously, I'm uh, thrilled to, to have you here. I spent a few minutes uh, uh, earlier just talking uh, through your background, but I do want to kind of step back and have you talk a bit more about yourself. Thank you, Brenda. It's just wonderful to be here and amazing that we can reconnect after all these years on social media. I agree. So thank you. Uh, What fun to be here. So let's see a little bit about my background. So I'm born and raised in San Francisco. And um, my mom, who's 87, still lives in the house that I grew up in. So it's fun to be home. And my children are now fifth generation San Franciscan since I'm fourth generation San Franciscan. Wow. Yeah, pretty exciting. (laughs) And I, um, gosh, well, there's so much to tell about, but in a nutshell, I've always, as a kid, was interested in business. And I had my own business in my bedroom, if you could believe it, Rebecca's little shop. My mom (laughs) hated to shop and I used to uh, do shopping for her. And then I ended up doing it for others and would sell things. And my father was quite ill when I grew up. So I spent a lot of weekends on the bus going Mm. to uh, my grandparents' house in Santa Rosa. And so I used to sell gum on the bus and sell candles (laughs) I made on the bus. So I guess I was a a salesperson, extrovert a la creme or whatever. Uh And so I think I, I, you know, from a very young age, I got really interested in business and I had so many interests. Uh, Languages was another one of my interests. And so all through college, I worked abroad in the summers. I worked in France one summer. I worked in Finland one summer. I was really active in a business organization that helped um, students around the world get internships. So I would go to companies in Rhode Island where I went to college and sell the concept of an internship of a foreign student to them. So it was a great exchange of internships. And then each local community helped get the work permits and all the housing and everything. So a great thing. I did that two summers. When I finished college, I was so interested in international life and business. I wanted to do both. And I ended up, um, before going to business school, I went to Finland for a year on a Fulbright grant, doing research at the University of Helsinki. And the Fulbright is really about bringing the world together after World War II to build a, a better understanding of each other, that you can't know each other if you don't understand each other, to mm-hmm. prevent World War III. So that was really the was- fundamental idea behind the Fulbright grant. And so love that. And then I went to business school and in business school, I continued that interest to work abroad. So the summer of business school, I worked um, in an internship in Hong Kong, sort of going around the world this way. So after business school, I went and moved to London and lived there for three years. Then it was time to come home. My dad continued to be ill. And my mother called me one day and said, I think he's not going to make it very long. You should come home. So I did. And I got another year with my dad. And, um, and then I started working here. I went back to business school and asked them, you know, Hey, I want to run a business someday. What should I do? And they said, mm-hmm. the career counselor said, you should be a product manager. You get a whole exposure to a PNL. My big learning was she was right. That having a PNL gave you exposure mm-hmm. to how a business runs. So that was really the start of my career and how I ended up in financial services. Wow. So first of all, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so incredibly um, 
happy that you got a chance to spend time with your dad. I mean, you know, that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that really our family um, and, and, you know, particularly our parents are our are, are foundation and, and really being able to be with them is, is, is so incredibly important. You talked about this international. So I have a daughter who also likes to travel, who, um, who studied abroad and the like. Um, and so people often ask her, you know, where, where did that itch, right, for that international piece come from? So talk a little bit about that. I really don't know where that comes from. My parents didn't travel internationally. Um, <laughs> but I do remember, I think it was like in second grade, I had a teacher who said, okay, everyone pack and bring your passports. We're going to Spain tomorrow or something. And I remember I'm a very literal person. And so I went home and I said to my mother, I have to have a passport and we have to pack. And I packed a suitcase and I went to school the next day. And I, I just remember this incredible feeling of disappointment that we didn't go to Spain. because <laughs> She laid out a map on the ground, like, you know, and fun things with histories in different parts of Spain. And I just remember this feeling of huge disappointment going <laughs> home. We didn't go anywhere, you know, so I don't know that, I, you know, maybe that launched it. I don't know. Oh, funny. And then the second one really has to do with women uh, CEOs and, and particularly in the larger, the, you know, kind of when you start to get into the Fortune 500, 100 companies, there are very few women, more than there used to be. Was your experience with the P&L critical to being able to, to move into that? I think that there are many, many paths to becoming a CEO. I have seen lawyers become CEOs. I've seen head of HR become CEOs. I've seen salespeople, CEOs. I don't think there's a single path to becoming a CEO. I think um, what I liked and what I think is really relevant about a you know, product uh, owner, P&L, and in the banks that I've been in, which you know, you and I worked together for many years, mm -hmm. is in banks, the product is often in the marketing group, you know, so in some other companies, it's not, it's their own area. But for me, I could get a sense of the entire operation through the product, the P&L, and understand the, the dependent, the interdependencies of the legal, the marketing, the operations, the customer service, the financials. So I got exposure early on to reporting on the numbers. And so, yes, I think it's an excellent path, but I don't think it's the only path. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it certainly positioned you to, yeah. so we all leverage from where, where we are, right? Right, exactly. But think about Silicon Valley. Tons of folks are from technology that are CEOs. They're, they're engineers. So I don't think there's a single path. Uh, point well taken. And what's, what's interesting, um, you've got the convergence of this sort of international uh, perspective, the intersection of, of, of culture and understanding different people, leading different people. You leave these major firms and you decide, you know what, my highest and best use is to advise others. What inspired you to go to that next step, right? I've done this. I'm in a position to help others. Sure. So I think it's a couple of things. I think um, when I became the CEO of Banamex USA and I had the opportunity to be the CEO of a subsidiary bank uh, and cross-border, an international bank, um, I 
I really, it was such a unique position because I had to report to the city board every month. And then I had my own board of directors because we're an, we were an FDIC regulated bank in the state of California. And then I had to interface with the Mexican management of the Banamex institution in Mexico. So it was just this super complex, interesting governance conundrum, if you will, to get it right. Mm-hmm. And I love that, that working with all those boards showed me a whole different side of the CEO life. Cause I'd been an operator my whole career, running businesses, running PLs, you know, driving growth, growing teams, growing product. But the CEO role has a huge amount of, if you will, investor relations, uh, mm-hmm. board of directors relations, regulatory relations, uh, legal, tons of legal, just doing everything the right mm-hmm. way in so many countries under different right. laws. So I intellectually loved the role, but I also saw that what was so helpful is that I had, I love people and I love teaching and I love coaching. And so a lot of feedback I got from my colleagues and my uh, team members was that I was, I mean, I'm just saying what they said, you're a great coach. And I, I that was very um, inspiring to me to get that feedback. And I knew at some day I would like to take that, if you will, coaching, advising, just to a different game. And I think that's, that was part of the, part of the inspiration. And then I like participating at that level, at the, mm-hmm. see it all, you see the full spectrum level. So on the, at the board level, you get to see all the intersection of everything happening mm-hmm. and help the CEO. So I think that's, those are my inspiration. When I got to be both the CEO on the board of the bank mm-hmm. while I was CEO of the three years. And then when I transitioned around the international bank, um, I became chairman of the board. So I had seven years on that board and I uh, recruited the next CEO uh, twice over those four years. And so then I served in that role as chairman of board and having brought on two different CEOs and really liked that, met with those CEOs uh, early on weekly. And then as they got to know the ropes less mm-hmm. frequently, always had our board meetings. What's unique about the challenges of a CEO in leading a business impacting people's lives, that that really is kind of how it all comes together. Yeah. And I like how you always say, Brenda, it's all about impact. Um, So I totally agree with you. You know, my first reaction to that question is, wow, Um, the CEO job is insane. And what I mean by that is that the CEO wears so many hats. You're both supposed to be the generalist and Mm -hmm. the expert. You're supposed to be decisive and you're supposed to empower everyone. You're supposed to be inspirational, but you're supposed to make the hard, tough decisions. You're supposed to be relatable, but then have enough distance. I mean, there's, it's Mm -hmm. like this conundrum all the time that you're operating. And so I think about externally as a CEO, you're wearing the hats of investor relations, you know, chief customer officer, chief people officer, chief numbers officer, Mm -hmm. chief media person, you're the face of the organization. And so there's an enormous amount of responsibility to be the walking representation of the culture, the value system, and um, you're always on, right? And then internally, you're always on. And there you're the teacher and preserver and guider and of the culture and the role model for everyone. And you're the strategy officer and you're the chief recruiter and you're, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the details of the operation. And yet you're supposed to be very 
hands off so that you're not in people's way micromanaging. And so it's a very, um, it's a really interesting dance about what I call knowing when to dive deep. Because mm. there is a problem area, then you need to go and you need to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And you have to know what to watch, what are your key indicators and not be in there doing it. You can't do it, you're one person. So you have to inspire, relate, almost evangelize, mm. manage and teach mm. while also staying healthy and balanced and not tired. It's it's a tough job. Yeah, yeah. And, and ever evolving. Yeah job right because uh we start to think about or being in corporate america is not separate and apart from the larger society i'm often told that what's going on in america is certainly just a reflection of what's going on in the subsets in corporate america describe what you think is is going on there how corporate america is actually handling that and what, what you think it, it should be doing to address whatever you believe the, the challenges are. And I, I'm thinking more specifically, you think about, you know, women CEOs, people right. of color, um, what do what those dynamics look like? And are they, again, just a, a subset of what's going on in the larger society? Sure. Well, no small question, Brenda. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. That's why we have you here. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, yes, our systems and trends in America run through our business life. What I try to remind everyone is that corporation comes from the word corp, C-O-R-P, which means body. Our oh. corporations are us. We are them. There is no other. Mm -hmm. so of course, the corporations completely reflect society because guess who's inside a corporation? People. There is no other, there is no them, it is us. That is what I spent most of my time doing mm. is reminding people that there is no the man or the woman. It is us. We're mm. the people that manage the people. So empower yourself. And I spent a lot of time, I work in five countries and I, I would still choose the USA any day because we are the most dynamic of the country. I, I, we're so dynamic. We're always evolving and we're constantly like self-evaluating mm. our own business culture. And we allow all these different voices, how uncomfortable or not we allow it. Mm. You know, we don't shut it down and say, that's not our way. Um, I'm not saying that people don't get shut down all the time. That's super hard. I'm just saying the truth is, you know, we are such a big 10 multicultural culture in the U S that, mm. you know, we just have so many different kinds of things going on at all times from religion, from um, race, from gender. I mean, we have such a dynamic and we have such a fluidity among, if you will, socioeconomic classes that don't okay. exist in a lot of other cultures. You just can't move that quickly through. So I'd say that what's unique from what I've seen from the five countries I worked in is that we have much more opportunity, upward mobility opportunity than I've seen in any other country that many other countries really still have a class system that no one talks about. Old money, new money, or, you know, that's Europe and what school you went to. And like here, people care what school you went to for a while, but then who asks you that later in life, right? Nobody. I'd say what's really extraordinary about the United States is the the opportunity to move, you know, you can go from 
nothing to anything. You can go from anything to nothing. I mean, you can just move through our economic cycles more so than a lot of other cultures. Don't get me wrong. I know people get stuck. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying we have more fluidity and mobility than, than many places. And I think success here wins. And so if you're successful, then you're accepted more. Of course, there are places that that matters more than others. We still have far to go, of course. I have such funny stories of, of um, each country and, you know, kind of their, their, their own biases inside those countries. Um, I could tell you so many, but I, I have one. I remember in France when I was working, um, people just always assumed I was my boss's secretary. They never assumed I was in the, the business ranks. You know, that was just that culture. It was shocking to me. You know, I had to constantly explain, no, 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 I'm in product development. They all would just walk in and hand me things like shows you in that society. Like that seemed to be the norm in that company. And then in Hong Kong, I, some people thought I was the entertainment, like, oh, are you working here to entertain? No, it crazy. Like they just didn't understand what a Caucasian woman was doing with this Asian company on this dinner. So I thought somehow I was the entertainment. I'm like, really? I, it was, I had some of the strangest situations, Brenda. So <laughs> So I don't know what isms those are. Do you see what I mean? Like, I don't want to label them because I don't even, I don't even know if that one was sexism or non-culturism, or I just didn't fit their expectation. You know, mm-hmm. let's say not fitting expectationism. What do you think needs to be done from your perspective? Yeah, it's such a conundrum because you are an African-American woman. I am a Jewish American woman, you know, I mean, I don't want to lose my Jewish identity or my San Francisco identity or my female identity. So it's like, mm-hmm. it's just that how important is that to the, the topic at hand? But I'll give you an example. So in my fortune 50 companies, mm-hmm. uh, which I've worked for two of uh, each for almost 13 years, I got asked to mentor people. And in these formal mentoring programs, I always said yes. I often got asked to lead the women's initiative. I always said yes. Do you see what I mean? But I never, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just interesting, but I'll give you an example. In the mentoring program, I noticed that they always gave me women to mentor and women who want to have children. And I asked the HR department that was organizing it, intriguing, are there no men that we're mentoring? They're like, oh no, but we always give you (laughs) the women who want to have children because you're one of the few executive women with children. I said, but maybe it would be better if I mentored men. So I said, I'm only going to mentor in the program if you give me an equal number of men and women. Like I had to radically shift the HR's department idea of their own mentoring program, that they were assigning women to women and men. And I had no idea until I was in it for a couple of years. And I realized I only have females. It's so odd. That is not my business life. My business life is I have men who work for me and women who work for me. And the men will tell you, I totally coach and mentored them and sponsored them. Just like the women would tell you, I totally coach, mentored, and sponsor them. I don't only sponsor women. I don't only mentor women. So I had to really push back on an unconscious thing that was going on in the HR department where Mm -hmm. they were giving me women mentees. So Mm -hmm. I pushed them and they started giving me men mentees. And don't you think in some way we make a greater influence to have a male mentee to a senior woman? What's interesting though is Different people may need different things at different stages in their career, because I've had people say, I want someone that's African-American to mentor me. I'm an African-American. I want to be mentored. I'm a, I'm a woman. I want to be mentored by a woman because I believe that that person can relate to what I believe my struggles may be or what my challenges are. And they've overcome, right? 
overcome in quotes, you know, whatever that the definition is. So trying to find that, that uh, right mentor, right? That's right for the person. Brenda, I totally agree. In an ideal world, I want male mentors, female mentors. I want black, purple, pink, gray. I want every kind of mentor, gray haired mentor. I want young men. I mean, I want young people to mentor me. I want older. I want every kind of diversity. Mm-hmm. That is the, you know, that is the greatest gift, right? I learn more. I learn from everybody. So I do. I, I think what I'm saying is that if someone says specifically at HR, I'd love to have a mentor who's a female who has kids. I totally get it. And I'm all in. It's just, it was unconscious versus conscious. And you uncovering and quite frankly, helping HR to understand where they have built in the bias, right? Right. Assuming right. that this is the type of mentor that you should right. have. Wow, I mean, there's like, so, you know, it, it's it's funny when you start talking about the this sort of international experience. It, it really does broaden the conversation. Where, quite honestly, Rebecca, we could be on this call forever. What, what's what's amazing about what you just shared is that it gives you a perspective that is so much broader, right? than most people may experience and, and certainly not to, to put down anybody else's experience, but to highlight um, the significance of your experience with having that perspective that is not just diverse within America, but diverse from an international perspective and how that influences your ability to actually have conversations right. with CEOs, right? It is so powerful. You don't really know yourself until you've lived with foreign people, mm. it's almost it's because what's so powerful is that when you're not inside the culture and you're visiting from the outside, mm-hmm. you have a level of freedom to operate that's so different than in your own culture. And so it gives you a chance to look at your own culture from the outside and a chance to look at the culture you're in, well, from your lens of being American, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just had such a different sense of each place. Well, let's let's transition now to um, all of this experience, honestly, um, has really put you in a great position, one, to launch the firm that you that you've launched, um, but also to now call yourself author, which we do as well. And I am so incredibly proud of the book that you've written it's called The Fit CEO, Be the Leader of Your Life. And um, you co-authored this book with uh, Lillian So, who is a transformation uh, coach. It has been a dream for a long time. You know, it came from years of traveling on business and traveling with colleagues and colleagues saying, wow, if they'd see me in the gym, like that was a really efficient workout. You ought to teach people that. Or then I would give talks, you know, over the years at different dinners and lunches and big business gatherings. And Mm -hmm. people would stand in line to talk to me afterwards. I'm like, who are they all standing in line? And and (laughs) come in and talk to me and say, oh, that was great. You said this, you said that I want to learn more. And then a lot of people say to me, you ought to write a book about that. And I started asking people, do people say that to you? And my friends are like, no, no one's ever told me I should write a book. (laughs) So it gave me an idea that maybe this wasn't just a crazy idea that right, right. people actually wanted for me to write these things down. So over years, I would sort of write down. So given my, my talks, my speeches, what people ask me about, and what I 
what I came to was people ask me about how do you do it Mm. all the time? How do you do it? How do you do it? How do you have family, kids, religious life, community engagement, learning, health, fun. You seem happy. You don't seem totally stressed out. And, And I, well, I would explain in my answers that it's really conscious intention. I mean, I really orchestrate my life, like an intentional orchestration of total health as a leader. And so I try to teach that. So I outlined the whole book probably um, nine, 10 years ago. And when I became CEO of Banamex USA, the title came to me, Mm. uh, which is Oh, fit CEO. And I outlined the whole book and then I started working with Lily. But basically I wanted to find um, a really efficient and effective way to stay healthy with my crazy schedule of commuting five. You know, I was traveling every week <clears throat> and Lily and I met and we just gelled. I mean, we would, we only met half an hour twice a month, but I was like, we were mind melding all the time. And so after working with her about a year, I said, Hey, I'm writing this book someday when I'm not in corporate America. I knew I didn't want to do it while I was at a company because I wanted to be able to do this, have do podcasts mm-hmm. and talk about the book and use it. And um, she said, sure. So then about six years later, I called her. And I said, hey, just checking in. Someday I'm going to write this book. You're still in. She said, yes. And then about three years later, I said, hey, I'm ready now. Are you in? She said, yes. And we realized we live a few blocks from each other and we met. Oh, wow. Friday, And we just did it. I know it's kind of funny. It's like, who knew we even could walk to each other's homes. So we then spent some time. So we already had the outline. I sent it off to um, a publisher. They took the book, the first publisher. So, you know, again, I had done enough homework to say this was probably the right publisher. Um, I I only sent it to one that I thought would want it. Yes, you are strategic. Yes. So, um, so that was great. So then they took it and it was all outlined already written a lot of it. And so then I I shared with them the vision and then Lily and I started really putting the structure together. And so Mm -hmm. the structure of the book is around five pillars, commitment, boundaries, intention, self-care and heart. And through that, we give, it's basically 30 chapters in those five sections that you can read one chapter a day. It's about Mm. three pages, four pages, and kind of practice one of our ideas from the chapter, or you can read it all in one sitting in two and a half hours, and then use it as a reference book to say, hey, I'm going to go travel for 16 hours. I want to go to that travel section, or hey, I'm dealing with a crisis at work, or hey, I'm feeling really tired and burnt out. I'm going to go to the sleep and self-care section. So I think interesting in COVID, this book is even more, I mean, it's totally relevant all the time, but it's even more relevant of how do you set boundaries when you're on Zoom all day long? And how do you take care of yourself and walk outside and see sunshine versus sitting inside all the time? And so talking a lot about fitness, physical and mental health have really been an integral part of my leadership journey. And so I share a lot of those stories. Mm-hmm. I love the, the focus on holistic living. And the idea that we are not one dimensional and really seeking to bring them all t- together. And as you said, being very intentional about how you led your, your life. I, I also love the fact that sprinkled throughout the book are a number of quotes. And I'm a person who loves quotes. I think quotes touch the heart, touch the emotion, trigger thoughts, uh, creativity and inspiration. Um, in ways that 
you know, a, a narrative of a paragraph does it right? Something that can immediately speak to you. If you have your favorite quote or a quote that you think really captures a message that you want to share with us, what, what would that quote be? Well, I have two. They are in the book because I think I tried to put all my life hacks in the book, but I would say my advice to people is be you. Then I would say my second one about the how is put your own oxygen mask on first mm-hmm. before you help others. I think those get at the essence of the book. Being you is about being your three-dimensional self, showing up as you, not as someone else, right? And being true to you. And that mm-hmm. has all kinds of heart, health, self-care implications. And you're the leader of you. Mm-hmm. The put your own oxygen mask on also taps into, before you help others, taps into boundaries, taps into self-care, commitment. It has so many levels to it that I think um, capture the book and capture my life philosophy. You know, it, it actually makes me think of something else I was going to ask you earlier. So is there a particular incident or situation experience that you had, you know, in life or in corporate America that kind of led you to either of the quotes? Yeah, you know, I I think all of my experiences early on in my career around trying to, um, to get it right, you know, kind of getting over my perfectionism is, you know, every chapter talks about being um, immediate and imperfect action. So part of my journey to not be a perfectionist was to just be me and not try to be all the things everyone else wants from you. Put, you know, put my own oxygen mask on first, but it triggered about, I remember once um, I was in a, a deal meeting and I was at the time the most senior person. And I brought my right-hand person who was a, a guy and uh, the two of us went to this meeting um, with a, in a foreign country and with a foreign leader, you know, not, not American. And I remember that guy never, who we were trying to do a deal with, never looked at me the whole meeting, he only looked at my male colleague. Mm. And I thought, wow, again, I don't know what ism it is. Is it sexism? Is it culturism? Am I, I don't know what I represent that the guy could never look me in the eye, but we walked out of there and talk about being true to self. I looked at my, the guy, the guy I was with decided to call me boss every two seconds to try to shift the dynamic Kept saying, Hey boss, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Never shifted it. But we walked out of there about living your value system. We're like, well, we'll never work with this guy. I mean, we're never going to do a deal with this company. But I don't know. It's being you, but it's like, it's putting your own oxygen mask on first, right? Mm-hmm. I could not possibly have oxygen working with someone like that. Mm-hmm. I love that story. I love that. And, that, and the amount of courage um, that it takes, the how much time we we compromise those things that ultimately um, would cause pain for us. Because if, if this guy behaved that way in the meeting, you can imagine once you got in the deal, what that was going to be like. Well, we knew right away, but it was funny. And also my colleague, he tried so hard. He kept saying, so boss, what do you think? He never shifted his eyes. It was just funny. I mean, now I say it's funny. At the time, I'm like, this is weird, right? Yeah. So, I mean, so yeah. meet you. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what I what what I I love about the story that was I mean, obviously, I love that it was painful for you, but how it really did position you to really give the best advice to other people, because sometimes the advice that you give, it's because you can feel what they feel. Yeah. Not that you just understand intellectually 
right, what they're going through, but you've been there and you feel what they feel. Yeah. And that's really quite powerful. Yeah. yeah. I love that. All right. So, of course, you know, my whole thing about songs. <laughs> I have a song, but I'm not going to sing it. I love songs. So I love so, your favorite song. When I was, the song also gets to something that I was going to say that I feel, um, well, okay, I'll tell you a song. I'll tell you a song. It's called Grateful. Oh, okay. By 13 Crowns featuring Pooh Bear. She's saying, I wake up every day grateful just to put a smile on my face. It's an amazing song, so it's worth listening to. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Now you have a nice beat. Well, you put a smile on my face. (laughs) That was so wonderful. I am so grateful to have you really share so much of yourself. And we only just scratched the surface. Um, I've had the privilege of just watching the impact that you have personally having worked with you. And I think anybody that reads your book or does business with you, they're in for a real, real treat. So thank you so much for for joining us. And um, thank thank you, you, Brenda. This was really fun. All right. Thank you for making an impact. It really is great. Trying to do my best, trying to live my live my calling. (laughs) Right. All right. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us today. We would love to share additional tools and strategies that can help you make the best decisions for your career or to build a dynamic and forward thinking environment please visit the services page on our website, therossdoolinggroup.com.